Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. We have a hell of a crew today and we have a hell of a show. But before we dive into that, Natasha, hello. How are you? I'm so excited. Disrupt is next week and I actually feel feel it, even though we're remote. I don't know what's happening. Well, it, it's three days. I hadn't realized that till I was doing some, some prep work and I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, there's like 68,000 things going on. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> but that's next week. What this week we're talking about is the fact that Marianne is joining the show as one of our regular co-hosts. You will hear her on the Friday show. Marianne, uh, please say hello and tell the people why you're stoked to be on Equity. Hi, everyone. I'm super pumped to be on this podcast on a weekly basis. I get to riff with my friends and former colleagues, Natasha and Alex. And it's just a great opportunity to like unpack all the awesome news that we published this past week. I think like the riff with friends actually could be our new tagline. That's exactly what it feels like <laughs> and with you joining the show. Like it's such a natural new addition. So, so happy you're here, Marianne. Today, we got a packed show. We're going to talk about funding rounds from Bridge Links, Relief, and Stored. We are going to talk about Atlanta, which was in the news several times this week, I think. We're going to talk about some layoff trends, including a scoop from our own Natasha. And then we're going to riff a little bit about the public markets and why EdTech is cool, Toast is not getting burned, and Freshworks looks quite hot. So with that, we're going to start off with um, kind of the supply chain infra collection of funding rounds. Natasha, I was really excited to see a, a round from Pakistan. Yeah, so this week we heard that Bridge Links raised a 10 million seed round. As you said, Alex, it's a Pakistan company. They're a digital freight marketplace, and they are one of many that are trying to help connect shippers with truckers to make the whole inefficient world of deliveries a lot more efficient. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's a little prosaic, but it's also dead on. I mean, there's a lot of inefficiencies in trucking kind of around the world, and especially in a large kind of geographic landmass country like Pakistan, it's going to be kind of a, a pretty serious issue. Uh, Marianne, I was surprised to see Harry Stebbins in this one. I didn't realize that he was writing checks in Pakistan. Another notable thing about this round is the largest seed round in Pakistan ever. It's kind of interesting that he is one of the first outside investors to be like an early backer in Pakistan and like more high profile venture funds like Sequoia, Excel and Lightspeed have not really put much money in the country. So I think that's notable as well. It's kind of a look into, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but it's kind of a look into how the next generation of VCs is doing their first checks because 20VC and Buckley Ventures co-led the round and it's their second Pakistan-based investment. So mm. I feel like that says something. Yeah, I was thinking about this just the other day because in, in the old days, VCs would say, if I can't skateboard to your office, I'm not going to invest in you because they wanted to be, you know, hyper-local, you know, in the mix together. Zoom changed all of that. And now to me, like, you know, if, if you want to complain less about prices and deal competition, go invest somewhere else that's not as as crowded. Africa is having an amazing year so far, as we've discussed on the show. So I'm just not surprised to see a record seed round in Pakistan, even though it's, it's it's 10 million. So it's not the biggest seed round of all time. But like for a country that we never talked about on the show until like six months ago, very impressive. But it's not the only thing in the kind of infra transport world that's been going on. Another thing that we're really curious about is Relief, which is spelled R-E-L-E-A-F, which is a Nigerian company that works in the palm oil business, Marianne, which is not a sector that I uh, had spent any time before this, learning about, I'm not going to lie. I think this company is, is really, really interesting on a number of levels. They're building both hardware and software solutions. And so one of the things that they're doing besides producing palm oil is building factories closer to farmers. Part of their whole shtick is that they're going to be producing palm oil that has less impurity than the standard. But, and I actually asked Tej, the reporter about this, 
right now they're choosing to sell a more impure oil, aka do regular standards. And then once they have market share, start to bring in their higher quality oil. And I was like, why would they ever admit that they could do it better, but they're not doing it better right now? Well, it's probably more expensive to do the better uh, the better oil. And so, you know, if you if you don't have a lot of capacity and you want to make sure you can sell something in the current market, maybe you make something a little bit less pure. I mean, like, you know, there's purity differences in like gasoline as well. So there's a there's a gradation here. It's, you know, jets at the top and then boats at the bottom. I, I love stories that really take us out of our like, you know, ed tech, fintech, construction tech um, domains. This was a blast. I'll add to Tej was saying the people, the founders who started this company, like he gave them props because he was like, they're Americans of Nigerian descent who are moving to Nigeria and working in the country, not in fintech. Like that is a statement of itself too. He was like, I'm so happy to see them not in fintech. They're going to ag tech. And that actually means something these days, since I think every funding we round we've talked about in Africa on the show so far has been fintech. Really and, and that's not our fault. That's not our fault, actually. There yeah. are an enormous number of uh, fintech companies in Africa because the problem space is huge, to be clear. Like it makes sense. But the lion's share of venture capital that fintech has taken up in Africa does mean that we've kind of had the same story on the show a couple of times now. And it's great to branch out uh, to a topic that, as you can tell by the last three minutes, we're slightly less confident about. Um, right. If we're being totally honest. <laughs> All right, we're going to bring it back to the United States, and we're going to talk about a company called Stord. That's S-T-O-R-D, no E. And no, it's not actually a Norwegian appliance company. It's actually an Atlanta-based logistics firm. Marianne, you wrote this, and the check size is huge. They raised $90 million at a $1.125 billion valuation. Kleiner Perkins led the round. This is a Series D. Kleiner Perkins also led their Series A a couple of years ago was founded by a couple of college dropouts who are now still in their early 20s, 24 and 23, the two co-founders. They started this company, like I think when they were 18 or so. What they're trying to do is give other businesses and retailers a way to compete with Amazon and help them ship stuff in two days. Because like, have we not all gotten spoiled by two days shipping with Amazon Prime? I mean, yes. Now, if it doesn't have Prime, even on Amazon, I'm like, absolutely not. October 3rd? Screw off. I'm not waiting for that. I'll walk and buy it. I'll show you. That's my birthday. You just picked my birthday. <laughs> I'm going to add that to my birthday calendar. That was, uh, ladies and gentlemen, luck right there. Um, Marianne, I have a question about the revenue point. I don't know if they disclosed this, but on the $100 million in revenue in Q1 and Q2, is that a kind of gross merchandise value of, of shipping, or is that the actual net revenue that stored itself gets to have? Okay, good question. I took it as net revenue, which I think is quite a lot. They've been growing 300% year over year. They also acquired a company, by the way, like a 22-year-old company called Fulfillment Works. So they've built technology, like a logistics network. And they're also like, they have a network of, they have warehouses and they're doing everything to help these companies and businesses ship stuff faster. So it's a pretty fascinating model. I've never heard of anything like it. By the way, they're based in Atlanta, which has been in the news more than once this week. Yeah. So Atlanta has been in the news several times. One time because I wrote about it on accident. And then <laughs> the other time because an enormous amount of news dropped. So if you were on the show uh, if you're listening to the show a couple of days ago, you heard about MailChimp and Intuit. And we're not going to go back through that entire deal because there's no need to retread that territory. But keep in mind that MailChimp is an Atlanta-based company. It turns out the Atlanta startup scene is blowing up. It's been kind of crazy lately how Atlanta has gone from being, Natasha, like, I feel like a sporadic thing to almost like a chronic mention in our lives. On the earlier stage side, are you seeing the same thing? Totally. I think VCs are definitely investing there, maybe not intentionally, but it's happening 
because everyone's investing remote right now. But Alex, in your piece, I was honestly, even though I'm hearing it pop up, I was honestly surprised by the numbers we're actually seeing in total capital invested. Can you kind of walk us through what you learned? Many cities are doing well. We've covered Chicago. We've covered Boston. You know, it's not a huge shock that Atlanta is also putting up some some pretty big growth. But the scale, you're right, is is, is nuts. So uh, in 2020, Atlanta-based startups raised 2.17 billion dollars, according to CB Insights data. Just a kind of a data point to contextualize that. In Q1 of this year, those same companies raised 2.1 billion dollars, nearly the same amount of money in Q1 as they raised all of last year. It's that acceleration in startup markets that I just can't keep my eyes off of. I mean, it's 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 a pace of investment that boggles the mind compared to historical norms. And it's it's great for Atlanta. I mean, like I've covered a company called Single Ops out there. They're doing vertical SaaS for uh, what they call the green industry, which is not a marijuana joke. It's actually just a description of like lawn care. And, you know, they're making vertical SaaS and they raised six million last year and they're doing great. But I mean, like, you know, that was one tiny piece of a very, very active puzzle. And I think, Marianne, they're going to give Austin a run for its money in terms of kind of where the third place crown rests for startup activity. A couple of years ago, I took a deep dive look at Atlanta and found over two dozen companies that are headquartered in Metro Atlanta that are among the Fortune 1000. So there's a lot of companies there that that are really like spawning other businesses. Georgia Tech is putting out a lot of talent. So I think Atlanta is one of those regions that people just don't realize how much is going on as it relates to technology. So I'm not shocked. It's emerges as a tech hub is just only continuing to happen. It has even more going for it, if you think about it, because Coca-Cola is based there. So not just the Fortune 1000. Think about the Fortune like five in terms of brand equity. Atlanta is also a cultural capital in the United States. And so I, I guess when we think about it from those perspectives, it's not a not a shock to see it doing so well. And it has a huge fintech backbone because much of the payment flow of the of the United States flows through Atlanta. So really, it's kind of perfectly set up to be a startup hub. Maybe we should be surprised that it hasn't done this three years ago versus being shocked about it now. Yeah, I feel like there was a lot of like catch up this week when the news item broke of the week with Intuit spending $12 billion to buy MailChimp, which is the Atlanta-based private bootstrapped company. And, you know, no one could ignore it at that point. And I was really excited to see that. But I was also, I think the controversy that came up as a result was that MailChimp, unlike a lot of like how we're spoiled in our startup world, it didn't offer its employees equity in its company. So now it has this big sale, but the employees, probably a lot of people who live in Atlanta, mostly people who live in Atlanta, aren't getting as rich, for lack of a better word, with the deal closing. And I think that won't shut down the startup ecosystem by any means, but it is like it could have been a really good thing for the startup ecosystem if we had a bunch of new millionaires because of MailChimp. And the the argument there is that pour a bunch of money into a lot of different pockets. They become angel investors. They're willing to write those first tiny checks to companies that are just getting started. And it's a way that capital recycles inside of individual ecosystems. And it's one way that Silicon Valley has done so well over the last, how long has it been now? 30, 30 years, somewhere around there. I forget when we kind of start the startup era, but a lot of that money has been recycling for decades now, which means you get an outsized impact of single investments. So yeah, no equity there. I was surprised to hear that. And I think it's a bit of a knock against bootstrapping if it ends up leading to even worse economic concentration? Was one of the first things I thought was, you know, here we go. Here's a company that never raised outside venture. Does that relate to the fact that they didn't offer options? So I agree. I wonder if there's a correlation there. And I do agree there could there could be some negative some negative thoughts as as regards to bootstrapped in light of the fact that these employees didn't have any equity in the company. I I will just add though, like this is what 
I think frustrates me even more. MailChimp isn't like a not modern company. It's an LP in the fund to watch in Atlanta, Collab Capital. So it's smart enough to become an LP in another fund, but it's not smart or thoughtful enough to invest in its employees. And I feel like that's like pretty ironic and frustrating. Yeah, this is as close to socialism as we get on the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. The, the company that made all the money did not share enough money with other rich people and they kept too much of the riches for not enough people. I mean, like, I, I guess this is populism in the startup world. We're doing our best. Uh, so we obviously know that this 12 billion exit looks bad because they haven't given any equity to their employees. But is there any argument for why that makes sense or why we should be giving them a little bit more grace in this moment? Well, I don't want to give them any grace, but I, I can kind of understand how in certain circumstances, some companies don't end up giving out equity because there isn't a culture of stock options in some places. Now, it's becoming more prevalent as startup culture itself spreads around the world. But maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago in Atlanta, which is not a startup hub back then, I think it's fair to say, maybe people just wanted more cash compensation and they didn't want stock options because they are complex, they are tax heavy, and they're often expensive to exercise. So maybe just at the time then they put the company together, uh, they didn't have that in place. Is that an excuse? A little bit. Is it fair? Maybe. But there is some argument to be made for this not being completely just, you know, avariciousness. Yeah, I think what they were doing is profit sharing where employees were getting kind of these higher bonuses that went into their 401ks. And I think in light of the fact that companies sold for $12 billion, that almost feels a little lame. It is in fact a little lame. You can do, by the way, 401k matching and give equity. It won't blow up anything. Just to add one little tiny note to this, just keep in mind how many companies Intuit has bought, Mint, Credit Karma, et cetera. And th that helped contextualize the transaction to me, even if I'm still a little bit skeptical of the alignment between the two companies. I had forgotten how much they paid for Credit Karma. So it, it, they've done this kind of transaction before. So maybe maybe I'll have an opener mind. Um, but Collab Capital, uh, let's put that aside and talk about D2C and some layoffs, Natasha. You had a bit of a scoop this week. Yeah. So Casper, which we probably talked about last time we talked about D2C, is a popular mattress company. It went public in 2020 and has since had a really rough time. It had a round of layoffs last year, but this week I learned that they had another round. This time it impacted about two dozen people and notably three C-level executives. So they lost their CMO, CTO, and COO and yet another kind of slash to their workforce. And it's sad. I mean, these are people too. We're definitely going to roast Casper's lack of direction as a business, but it's a layoff story, and I haven't written one in 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 a while, so it it just kind of hit different when I was publishing. I was intrigued by the fact that there were just so many like senior executives that were a part of this layoff. Totally, and even the ones that haven't left. So, like its CFO, for example, has been this like revolving door of a position ever since they announced their layoffs a year ago when they were shutting down European operations. And so obviously Casper's doing a restructuring. To me, the takeaway beyond like the humans that were impacted from a strategy perspective, I think like all of its eggs are going into a D2C basket at this point because they're really trying to strip away a lot of their retail presence, a lot of like their in-store personality and go all online is my guess, my closest guess I can do. They obviously didn't comment for the story. <laughs> yeah, I'm not shocked by that. I'm just going back through their numbers right now. I haven't actually looked at Casper's numbers in a couple of quarters because- Oh yeah, walk us through them. 
I stopped caring about them after they went public. And I, not to be mean, but public companies aren't really our remit. We're mostly focused on the private markets. So right. companies go public and we leave them. Notably, according to this historical financial statement from an August report from the company, kind of going through June, so the first half of this year, revenue was up. The downside is, so were operating losses and net losses. So kind of a plus minus there. The company just has a lower margin product than I think people hoped. DTC is expensive to do from a CAC perspective. And, you know, there's a lot of competition in the mattress game. There's literally a store on every single corner in some town. So I I wish them the best. And I hope that whatever comes next is better than what we've seen since the IPO, because it's been kind of a sad story. I'm sick of punching down. I want to make fun of someone else, you know, poor Casper. I think one of the things also I was wondering about is Apple earlier this year and its app tracking transparency feature has, has also played a role, I think, in and how companies are able to decide how they're going to spend their marketing dollars. What do you guys think? Like, did that play any role in what's happened to Casper? Yeah. So like one DTC founder I spoke to made that same guess. She said that there is an argument to be had that Casper probably put a lot of effort into its D2C sales when the pandemic hit. But with Apple's update, it's harder to know if the money they're putting into Facebook and Instagram ads is actually turning into sales. So suddenly it's sales team, it's marketing team. A lot of their retail teams have have a much harder job proving their value or, or at least attributing their value to actual money. So I think, Marianne, you're spot on in, in saying that like Apple is actually probably having an impact, not just on the Caspers of the world, but any startup that relies on an online channel to get their product sold. That's really interesting because Apple's making changes that impacts how third-party companies spend on social platforms. So really, this is just Tim Cook kicking Mark Zuckerberg in the shins, I think. <laughs> kind of. You spent your you spent like a whole day on at the Apple conference or Apple Day. I don't even know what it's called because I, I never went to one. <laughs> what I what I actually did was spend several hours on a Zoom or essentially a YouTube live or whatever the hell it was. I Apple has never invited me to one of their events, shockingly enough. Just one more data point on the whole spend thing, because you know, we'd be curious to see how TDC companies will react to this particular, you know, change in advertising. I will say Casper has really increased its sales and marketing expenses uh, this year compared to last year, which is probably why they they grew. But, you know, I wonder if they feel confident in those expenditures or if they're just not sure that they're making the right money fall into the right uh, channels. So it's gonna be a bit of a mix, I think. I, I wonder after the the cookie changes from Google and the browser wars and the app tracking changes and a general kind of global push towards privacy. If we're going to see legitimate changes to how companies market themselves and maybe social gets it cheaper as a channel, which would be great for DTC companies overall. DTC is obviously going to be a sector we now need to watch with a lot of these tensions that you just perfectly outlined, Alex. Another one that I am sorry to break to all of you is that I think EdTech boot camps are in for a reckoning or at least a moment where they're hitting their total addressable markets, which are not that big at, in their early days and are trying to break into new verticals. So another layoff story I wrote recently was with BlockJ cutting half of its workforce. And they were a platform that taught people who weren't in tech how to get sales representative roles in tech companies. Now they're becoming a B2B SaaS platform for sales teams. I mean, that kind of pivot is such a statement in and of itself. And I don't want to obviously put the whole category on blast, but I do think based on VCs I talked to that it's not alone in struggling to make the bootcamp model work. How many students are there in the markets for these companies? And, you know, how fast can you recycle through them? I mean, it just maybe it's tapped out. I think there's just also so many options, which Natasha can speak to, right? Like there's so many options out there today compared to like a few years ago, even. 
Totally. I think a lot of edtech companies are starting to even question if they should have taken venture to begin with because it completely changes your incentives as a company that's trying to educate individuals. Um, can we talk about some IPOs though, please guys, just for me? Let's do it. I think I think part of the edtech chill, so to speak, may be forcing some companies to move to the public markets pretty fast. When you were out, Alex, I learned that Quizlet was planning to IPO and I immediately wanted to text you and I had to resist texting you because it would have been a distraction from your vacation, but I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> you, you do know that I was on Twitter and I saw your story and I instantly retweeted it. You so. did retweet it. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I, I didn't die. I just sat on the couch for a few days instead of the office. Um, I, what, what does unplugging mean in COVID? Anyways, uh, Natasha, for the folks who don't know, Quizlet, tell us about it. How old is it? How big do we think it is? Does the IPO make sense or is this desperation? So Quizlet was a really, is a really interesting company because it's 15 years old, was built by a 15 year old and really had this like slow and steady approach to being a venture backed strong business there for people who maybe are it's on the tip of their tongue, how they know it. It's a flashcard tool that a lot of us used while we were in school and they've since added premium features one year after they hit unicorn status, they're planning to IPO. And I feel like it's just such a contrast between how long they took to get to this stage to hitting unicorn one year later, planning to IPO. And not only that, you know, Natasha, we've seen more EdTech IPOs than I would expect, because if we have Quizlet, it's going to follow Duolingo, which has done well, if I recall correctly. And then we've also heard that German language app Babbel may list in Frankfurt. So that's three, which almost feels like a trend to me but in a good sense, because these are not weak companies limping across the line, like some sort of EV company crying out for a SPAC. These are legitimate businesses showing strong revenue growth and presumably software margins. So like, I, I mean, you said earlier, you know, is the ed tech market turning? But maybe we could spend that as like, have some ed tech startups mature to the point at which they're now sufficiently ready to go public? I think so. I think that's like a, a, a much better way to phrase it, because a lot of these companies were spotlighted for the pandemic, but they wouldn't, you, a spotlight doesn't bring you to the public markets. Like a lot more does. And they obviously like have experience taking their time as well. So like, can't wait to see their finances. And Alex, I know when we wrote Duolingo's piece, we got a look into consumer ed tech. So it'll be really fun to compare both of those companies and, and how much they've grown over the years. All right. And now we're going to hard pivot into customer experience software. Let's do it. I'm excited. I don't know. <laughs> no, this is, this is actually kind of cool. So Freshworks is going public. The company is kind of like a dual Indian US-based company. It was founded back in the days before VCs would, or maybe perhaps were as willing to fund India-based companies and wanted founders to more to fly to the US and build their company. Freshworks is looking to go public in the US for between $28 and $32 a share, which is roughly between $9 and $10 billion, depending on how you kind of count up the share count. And it's doing great. It's a company that makes a lot of sense to me. It is a SaaS company. It does SaaS things. And we don't need to go too deep into it because Natasha, Toast is looking like it's going to have an amazing valuation gain when it does go public. Uh, and I can't believe that 15 months after the layoffs or whatever, we're talking about it going public for nearly like it's like 16, 17 billion dollars. It's crazy. I know. I feel like it's taking up like fresh works and toast. Like there's definitely like a Danny pun to be made in that. But like, I just know that like toast is really taking up the conversation right now just because of how impressive that Boston based valuation really is. Here's a Quizlet for you. How fresh works? Do you like your toast? I don't know. There. That's, oh that's, my god! <laughs> that's oh, all we needed. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I had th I had seven seconds to come up with that. Like, I mean, it's not going to be good. Um, toast, by the way, according to my math, just looking back at our script doc here, uh, up to eighteen billion dollars in valuation if you count all the shares. Though, of course, we don't have a final number for that yet. The company's really been valued off its amazing Q2. It had a shockingly good Q2 2021. Just great growth. I think 
Toast is an example of a company that we weren't sure about at the beginning of the pandemic and then turned it around and is doing super well. So it's it's impressive to see how it's grown and it's a little bit of a sign of 2021. Uh, but Natasha, one thing we learned, just worth going over this again, is that Toast is majority a, a fintech company, less kind of a software business than you might think. And that's why it's currently valued at roughly at the top end of its IPO range, just 10 and a half times its run rate, which isn't that much for a software business. But you know, fintech revenues can often be lower margin. But I don't think anyone in Boston is going to complain about seeing a nearly $20 billion acquisition go through. Yeah, not enough people I feel like are talking about that. Because when I do think of Toast, I do think immediately of software. And I think it'll be interesting next week to see what startups they think their IPO will be impacting. Like, will it be payment businesses? Will it be software businesses? Kind of like how Duolingo is is not benefiting edtech businesses as much as it's benefiting consumer businesses. Yeah, I remember that. So I think to answer this question for any company, go find their highest margin business line. And that's what they're going to tell you they do because they want to paint themselves in that higher margin revenues to get that higher multiple. I wouldn't be shocked if you saw Toast bump up its, its share price uh, a little bit before it goes out. But uh, we'll have more on that next week when we do see the IPO. Uh, but in the meantime, Natasha, lovely as always to see you. Marianne, thank you for joining our crazy little crew. We are stoked to have you aboard the Good Ship Equity. And everyone else, we'll see you on Monday. 